This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Here you go. Here you go. Nerf. You're getting used to it, right? The nothing personal word of the day. We start every show with it. It's nerf. How could nerf be a word of the day? Because yesterday, at 80 years old, Fred Cox passed away. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, Fred Cox was a 15-year veteran for the Minnesota Vikings. Pretty good player. Scored the most points at the time behind George Blanda. But he invented the Nerf football. And if you have not played with the Nerf football, then you haven't played with anything. I'm talking about the football that sort of peels off when you play with it. And then you grab it and you throw a spiral and you catch it. Then it goes in the pool and you have to squeeze it to get the water off. And then a little bit comes off and it gets on your floor and you never clean it up. And you never get rid of that Nerf football until all the paint has come off. That's Nerf football. Here's to you, Fred Cox, for inventing something that every single kid used his entire childhood and then into adulthood. There's a fight going on right now, and it's not the kind of fight that's a pay-per-view fight because the stakes are much higher than that. This is a fight for football in Los Angeles. Now, you may be thinking Los Angeles already has two football teams. Who could be fighting, and why would they be fighting, and what are they fighting about? And then you may be asking me, is it even interesting to hear about billionaires fighting? And the answer is yes, because what's going on in Los Angeles right now has a long history and there is no end in sight. And here's the story. As you know, the Oakland Raiders were the Los Angeles Raiders, then the Oakland Raiders. They left Los Angeles in 1994, leaving one of the biggest markets in the United States empty from having a National Football League team. The NFL really liked it that way because they always had that carrot to hold out when there were teams going for stadiums in the cities in which they were, or when it was time for expansion or even relocation. Having Los Angeles out there was the ultimate carrot. And then came a few years ago when one of the existing owners in the National Football League, a man named Jerry Jones, yes, that Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, what does he have to do with this? To begin with, everything. So now I have to go back further for you. Jerry Jones built his new ballpark called AT&T in Dallas, and it is an outstanding stadium. I called it a ballpark. It's a stadium. They give tours for 50 bucks. You can go and look at his art collection. You can see all the premium areas. You can even get to look in Jerry's suite with the private elevator. But one thing that Jerry was clear about is that building that stadium made a lot of sense because there was a huge return on his investment. And he expected that his franchise would grow in value, which it has to become one of the most valuable franchises in the entire world, not just in football. 
Jerry Jones started a company called Legends Hospitality. Legends Hospitality is a company that's co-owned by Jerry Jones and the New York Yankees. It's a completely separate entity that does several things, the first of which it does concessions, the second of which is you can hire them to do your sales for you. They're like an outside sales force where if I'm the president of the Marlins, I would hire Legends, they would come in and try to sell season tickets or sell luxury boxes. They don't do it for free. They get paid both a commission and a retainer. It is a very lucrative business that is completely outside of revenue sharing in baseball and completely outside of any sort of revenue sharing in football. Completely separately owned entity. So Jerry Jones had the idea of bringing football back to Los Angeles. And what started then was a two to three year fight to figure out which would be the teams to go to Los Angeles and where a new stadium would be and who would be in charge of building the new stadium and then running the new stadium. You see, there were three teams in play back in the day. It was the St. Louis Rams, who, as you may know, you've seen him walking around because they've been good with Los Angeles, Stan Kroenke. He, Stan Kroenke owns soccer teams. He is a mogul, a multi-multi-billionaire, and one of his most famous assets is owning the Los Angeles Rams. Then there's the family that we've talked about here on Nothing Personal and on CBS Sports HQ, and Dean Spanos, his family owns the San Diego Chargers, now the Los Angeles Chargers. Then there's Al Davis and his family who own the Oakland Raiders. All of those teams were looking to move. The St. Louis Rams were looking to move out of St. Louis, the San Diego Chargers out of San Diego, and the Oakland Raiders out of Oakland. But only two teams could possibly move to L.A., and the other was going to end up going to Vegas. They ended up putting a deal together where the Oakland Raiders are moving to Vegas, and the Chargers and the Rams are going to L.A. Now, that sounds easy. There's no fighting yet, you're saying. Well, the fighting has just begun at this point in the story. Once you decide which two teams are going to move to Los Angeles, you then have to figure out where a stadium is going to go and who's going to be responsible to build it. And this is where we get into an issue between the ownership of the Chargers and the ownership of the Rams. And this is a fight that is ongoing this moment that is deleteriously impacting both teams and their operations. What happened was Jerry Jones, on behalf of himself and in the NFL, he thought that a stadium plan put forth by Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Rams, was a better stadium plan than the one put forth by Spanos. Spanos was going to build and run a stadium in a totally different location in the Los Angeles area than where Kroenke wanted to do it. Well, both of those people and owners needed permission from the NFL and approval on where they were going to build. So then began about a six-month process where behind the scenes, each owner was lobbying to try to get the NFL to approve their own particular stadium deal. Why would they want to be in charge of their stadium? Because that is the way to control everything about the stadium where you play, control the revenue, and increase the value of your team. So these were high-stakes gambling. Spanos went to a National Football League owners meeting, fully expecting that he had a deal on the table where he would prevail over Kroenke. What he didn't realize is a deal had already been cut behind his back, where Jerry Jones was involved, Roger Goodell was involved, and obviously Stan Kroenke of the Rams. They get to the owners' meeting. A deal is approved where Kroenke will be building a multi-billion dollar stadium. The total cost of this project in LA was $1.8 billion, and Kroenke was willing to pay for it by himself. And then there were overruns. 
not 100 million, not 500 million, a billion, and then another billion, and then another billion, and then another billion. The total cost of the Kroenke Stadium is now somewhere between five and six billion dollars. And in return, Kroenke gets all the revenue from that building. But he needed a tenant because that was part of the deal. And the tenant is the new Los Angeles Chargers. And the total rent paid by Dean Spanos as part of this backroom deal is one dollar, Mortimer. One dollar of rent is all that's paid. You'd think that's a great deal for the Los Angeles Chargers. You'd think Spanos would be happy, but he's not. And the reason he's not happy is he has zero say over the look of the stadium. He has zero say over who and how revenue is raised for that stadium. The only thing he had to do was sell his own tickets and his own season ticket licenses called SSLs. But the Chargers never had a chance to do it because Legends was hired to sell the boxes for this whole stadium. Yes, Legends, the same company owned by Jerry Jones and the Yankees, the Steinbrenner family. Well, wouldn't you know it that Legends spent most of their time and energy making sales on behalf of the Los Angeles Rams, not the Los Angeles Chargers. And then wouldn't you know it that Spanos woke up one day and said, this is not fair. Why is it that all of the efforts are being made to get revenue to the Rams and not the Chargers? Why are we already the ugly child of this stadium deal? What happened to our honeymoon period? We play in a temporary 26,000-seat stadium in California right now, and already we get more home, more visitor crowd than home crowd, more people cheering for the visitor team than the home team. The whole point of the relocation of the San Diego Chargers to Los Angeles was a brand new start in a market that had been empty since 1994. But what's missing from Jerry Jones and Roger Goodell and Kroenke and Spanos is they didn't realize what happened in L.A. between 1994 and now. All of the NFL fans in L.A. decided they weren't going to root for a specific team. They were going to root for any team, which is why when visiting teams come to town and play in L.A., the fans who are fans of the road team are the ones who are going to the games which is why when you see a Packer game in L.A., it looks like it's at Lambeau, which is why even when you see a Cowboys game in L.A., it's as though the game is being played in Arlington. The real problem with that is the NFL made a huge bet on Los Angeles, as did Stan Kroenke, and they do not want this to fail because the entire carrot that used to exist of holding out Los Angeles, that carrot has now completely disappeared. So what are these teams fighting over right now, and how do they work at NFL meetings? Well, they're actually kept separately, Spanos and Kroenke, because they won't even talk. And sometimes they're photographed having a drink. That's all staged, because everyone wants it to look like there's a kumbaya, so people don't believe there's any problems. But in reality, the staffs of both the Chargers and the Rams are fighting about little things about even what a golf cart is going to look like that is going to be owned by the stadium and used to bring fans and VIPs from one place to another. When you're fighting about little things like that, you know you've got a major problem. And Dean Spano should have known better because when you're a tenant, you never beat the landlord, ever. If you have a choice between being a landlord and a tenant, you choose landlord. And that was Stan Kroenke's position from the beginning. What fascinates me is what's happening on the field now. The Chargers walk around as though they've got a cloud over their head. 
They look around as though they never wanted to leave San Diego. They're not excited to be in LA. They don't feel as though it's their home team. Then you've got the Los Angeles Rams who hired their shiny new young coach who made it all the way to the Super Bowl and had a chance to build a dynasty. And now they're sort of having a mediocre season and the stadium is due to open. All of the momentum that Kroenke thought he had for his franchise is being wiped away by lawsuits and lack of performance. All of the excitement of the ribbon cutting and all of the excitement of this new market that would generate millions and tens of millions of dollars of revenue is all going up in the smoke of fighting billionaires. Billionaires fight all the time. That's really nothing that's too common. But the one that's going on now is one that uh, we're going to have to watch. We talked about it yesterday. Here's what happens when you don't want to pay a player. Uh, When a player's bad, you want to release him. And the Yankees released Jacoby Ellsbury. They signed him to a seven-year, $153 million deal. And then word came out today, shockingly, that the Yankees do not want to pay not only the $21 million that he's owed this season or the $5 million he's owed for next season, 2021, They filed a grievance to get back pay for previous seasons where he did not play. And their reason is very simple. They are claiming that Jacoby Ellsbury went to go rehab his injury in a non-agreed-upon rehab facility. Here's how it really works. When a player gets hurt, we send our player to our team doctor. Once the team doctor makes an evaluation and gets to the team, we go to the player and tell the player what's wrong, and the player agent. The player under the collective bargain agreement then has a right to get a second opinion. There is a list of second opinion approved doctors that have been pre-approved by the players union and by the owners. The player can get as many opinions as he wants, but at the end of the day, it is up to the team to decide where and how rehab happens. Players don't get a choice if they wanna go home and rehab, the team has to approve. If the Yankees wanted Jacoby Ellsbury to be in Tampa, he had to go to Tampa. If he wanted them in the Bronx, he's got to be in the Bronx. It is completely up to the team and nobody else. As it turns out, Jacoby Ellsbury was going to some sort of rehab center that is now actually under investigation by MLB under their staff who investigates PED abuse. No, this is not a biogenesis situation. There's no A-Rod to be seen. No one's getting paid off and no one's getting roughed up. This is simply about MLB supporting the Yankees in trying to get a player at less money than what he is guaranteed. And this is about the union trying to make sure that guaranteed contracts get paid off regardless of injury or lack of performance. This is one of the great problems in baseball and why there's such a lack of trust between the players union and the owners. Do you know why I fought so hard when D. Gordon was signed to a guaranteed contract with the Miami Marlins? and then he tested positive for steroids, I wanted to unguarantee his contract and not pay him. Well, I wasn't allowed to do it because his contract was guaranteed. We went to the players union and said, why if you are so against players using PEDs, like Justin Verlander comes out every year, how strong he is against PEDs. If you're so against PEDs, then why not make it a real deterrent for players that any guaranteed money owed to them after they test positive disappears and becomes non-guaranteed money. And do you know what the players union said? They said they would never allow that because they think the owners would taint the urine of the players who were not performing well, so they would test positive. 
So let me get this straight, Players Union. What you're claiming is I'm going to go with the player into the bathroom. I'm going to grab his private part, and I'm going to somehow mess with the sample where there's a, a, a neutral party who watches the player go pee, then closes it, and then sends it out. Somehow I'm going to climb into the mail. I'm going to take possession, and I'm going to put tainted pee into it just because the player stinks. Is that your story? Is that what you're telling me I'm going to do? If you're serious about PEDs, then you should allow every guaranteed contract to become unguaranteed. And Jacoby Ellsbury, if you're hurt and you don't want to go where we tell you to go, you don't deserve to get paid. When you're making $153 million over seven years and you get paid about two hundred and eighty grand a game because you barely ever played, and then you're going to have an issue with where we want you to go, that's not going to fly. Now, if the Yankees gave you permission to go and now they're just sour grapes trying to not pay you, don't worry, Jacoby, you'll win that grievance. But if there's any other possible story, you may have yourself a big problem. We do something here on Nothing Personal that we started a few days ago. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, my Twitter is David P. Sampson, at David P. Sampson. You can come follow. And then you can DM me. I leave my DMs open, which can be difficult sometimes because uh, what that means is anyone can reach me. And sometimes I happen to read things that I assume would not have been intended for me because they are so crazy and sometimes mean that I would assume they meant a different David Sampson. Some of them are incredibly nice and complimentary. But the good news is I ignore the mean ones and I ignore the nice ones. And that's sort of how I calibrate myself. But what I'm looking for are actual topics that you want to talk about on Nothing Personal. And every single day, I will choose one of your topics. And it's called, You Want to Talk to Samson. So that's where we are right now. You want to talk to me? You got me. You sent in a topic that you wanted to know about the Cubs' blueprint and what they should be doing this offseason. The Cubs have a very interesting situation. As you know, they let go of Joe Madden. The reason they did is he was no longer getting along with Theo Epstein, who is the president of baseball operations. But they've got major roster decisions to make. The number one decision right now in front of them regards Chris Bryant. What do you do with the player who's represented by Scott Boris, who has a year to go until free agency, who's in the middle of a grievance, no less? The grievance for Chris Bryant is that Chris Bryant wants to be a free agent now because he believes that he was held in the minor leagues too long. So Chris Bryant and the Cubs are fighting right this very second. They had a hearing and they're waiting for a result. Well, the Cubs need to keep Chris Bryant for one more year and then let him test the open market. The best chance for the Cubs to win in 2020 is having Bryant play on a walk year. If there's one thing that Scott Boris does well, he gets his players to play well when they have an opportunity to become free agents and maximize their money. So do not extend Chris Bryant because he had the audacity to take you to a grievance. I'm not allowed to be punitive as an executive, but I'm not an executive anymore, so I can be as punitive as I want. You file a grievance against me, I'm going to make sure that you play for me and I'm going to play you every single game and then let you walk away in free agency. The good news is it makes my team better. Next decision is Javi Baez. Javi Baez also has a year left of arbitration. He's going to get a raise. He's someone that I would look into extending. For me, Javi Baez is a $20 million player, five years, not more than that. $100 million is what I would offer to Javi Baez. 
Problem is, he's going to think that he's a $30 million player, but he's not. If I can't come to agreement with him, I put him in arbitration, I keep him on my team. You have a better chance with Baez and with Bryant. What do I do with my new guy, Castellanos? I'm hearing that all over on Twitter at David P. Sampson. He was critical every when he came over from the Tigers. He seems like he had a home run every single game. Well, he's a defensive liability along with Schwarber, and there's no reason to re-sign him. He's a Boris guy who all of a sudden thinks he should be getting paid more than Ozuna's going to get, who's a free agent now, having spent the last year with the Cardinals, having been a Marlin before that. Castellanos is not worth $20 million a year, which is what he thinks he's going to get. Even if he thinks he's going to get 18 by 5, that is absolutely not worth it. Thank him very much for his service and let him move along. Because you have another liability in the outfield in the name of Kyle Schwarber. What do you do with him? Well, he's been a hero to so many Cubs fans. He comes up in in spots that are great. He hits the home run. You get excited. Except what about all those times he strikes out with the runner on base? What about all those times when he's in the field and every Cubs fan on Waveland Avenue is praying to God the balls and hit his direction? What do you do? It's time to move on from the Kyle Schwarber era. Can we call it an era? I think you can when you get a ring. We're moving on from Schwarber. Next thing we have to do, we have to get a frontline starting pitcher. I want Zach Wheeler on this team, and I want Daniel Hudson on this team. I want to shore up my bullpen and my starting rotation, but I know that I'm not going to be able to get Colin Strasburg because I simply don't have the capacity to do that. But you bring in Wheeler into that rotation, and you hope to God that Darvish can possibly repeat slightly his good starts, and you hope that Lester still has at least 30 starts left in that arm of his, and you've got the makings of a good rotation. You sharp the bullpen with Hudson. You've kept Bryant and Baez. You've jettisoned Castellanos, and you've jettisoned Schwarber, and you've got yourself a team that will absolutely be competitive in the National League. Thank you so much. You have just spoken to Sampson at David P. Sampson. Rob Manford has his hands full, folks. This is a um, this is sort of a big deal, what's going on. And, and I talk about it on the show a lot. And it matters to me. When I was in baseball, I cared a lot about labor. It's not just that I'm a lawyer. I loved law school. I love being a lawyer. But what interests me is the way how to work with unions and how to figure out the best way to deal with the players' union who has become so emboldened under Tony Clark, their leader, that they actually believe they're entitled to make more money than they're making. It always shocks me when employees believe they're worth more than they are because it's always been my point of view that unless you're the employer, you better just keep your mouth closed and hope you continue to get paid as the employee because the employer gets a choice who to employ. We've talked about it in a few segments on this show, and this is only episode 28, but we've had an opportunity to talk many times before about my view of the employer-employee relationship way back when Deadspin was having that issue with their employees. Right now, the Players' Union believes they have the upper hand. They believe that they are all together, all the players. They're ready to strike. They're saving their money. Can you imagine right now MLB, a strike happening when this collective bargaining agreement expires at the end of 2020. One, it's not going to happen. Let me tell you what is going to happen. There's going to be a lockout. The owners are going to lock out the players long before the players have a chance to strike. And the reason the owner is going to lock out the players is that is a strategic play that is used in order to get the edge when it comes to the future bargaining. And why is it that the owners feel there needs to be a lockout? 
And why is it the players feel there needs to be a strike? That's what happens when two people look at the same picture and see a completely different it's like the ink blots, the Rorschach ink blots. I always look and see a dog, and everybody else looks and sees two people having a conversation by a campfire. It's the same thing, but two totally different ways of looking at it. As owners, we would look at it very simply. I'm not making money on an annual basis. I'm only making money because of things I'm doing outside of baseball, and if I choose to sell, which I really don't want to do. The players are saying, I want a higher percentage of revenue. And I want it being paid equally to everybody. It used to be fine that the old guys were getting paid a lot of money, but now the older free agents are getting less money. You have to be the best to get paid. Can you imagine that, having to be the best at your job to be paid the most? So Rob Manford last week at the owners meeting, he threw out the first salvo in what I believe is going to be a long, drawn-out fight. There's been labor peace in baseball since 1994, and that's something Commissioner Bud Selig was very proud of. Every owner's meeting, Bud Selig would talk to the media, and every time he could, he would talk about the labor piece and how important it was for him. Unfortunately, sometimes he had to make bad deals to get that labor piece, but it was good for the fans, and it was good for TV, but it wasn't good for the sport over the long run because it let things fester. And now things are bubbling over, and Bud Selig has long since retired and been taken over by Commissioner Rob Manford. So Rob Manford gives me the following quote to the media. I said to Bruce Mayer, who is working for the Players Union, quote, labor peace is a mutual benefit. It's not something you trade economics against. That was spun as a quote of Rob Manford saying that he will not trade labor peace for economic concessions. What that means is the players used to be able to come to us and say, if you don't give us X, there won't be labor peace. And we'd say no. And they'd say it again, and we'd say no. And they'd say it a third time, and we'd say yes. And the reason we said yes is we wanted labor peace. We needed labor peace. And what Rob Manford's now saying is that we will no longer trade labor peace for some economic benefit that you want as a union. Because if you want an economic benefit, like more money for cheap for players who are younger, like you want a better travel schedule, fewer games, you want higher salaries, you want to change the rules of arbitration, all those things that you want as players, well, you're going to have to give to get. And giving doesn't mean the concept of, oh, we'll have an agreement, there'll be labor peace. Giving means an actual concession by the players. What would a concession by the players look like? How about what we talked about earlier in the show? That if someone tests positive for BEDs, their guaranteed contracts become not guaranteed. How about tougher testing on opioids? How about the draft picks not getting paid as much, even though there's now a slotting system? Why is it that we're giving high schoolers or college-age players five, six, seven million dollars? These are kids, half of whom don't even make it to the big leagues. We'll give up a concession. We, I keep saying we. I talked about this on a, on a show I did yesterday. And uh, it's not we, it's them. It used to be a we, it used to be a me. Everything that was me is now them. Everything that was we is now they. I feel like the pronoun guy, and really it's just I now. Although I'm happy to be have a C and a B and an S with me by my side. So the baseball players will say, I want the draft picks to get paid more money 
But if you want him to get less money, that's fine. You know what we want? We want the minimum to go from 550000 to a million dollars. That was always a very popular thing that the players wanted, higher minimum. Well, if you've got 10 players making the minimum on your team and you have to go from five hundred grand to a million, you've just increased your payroll by $5 million, just like that. 30 times 5 is $150 million per year. That's 30 teams, 5 million, assuming 10 players at the minimum, that goes from half a million to a million. You'd be surprised the number of hours that are spent fighting over the minimum salary because the players' union thinks it's not a big deal at all, and my view always was it is a major deal to increase the minimum. So the fighting that is going on right now is not at all the actual bargaining. This is called the posturing phase. And you're going to see this play out through the entire course of the 2020 season. The only thing I expect to come out before, and I'll be hugely disappointed, is that there should be new rules on opioid testing after the death of Tyler Skaggs. If they can't even agree on that, we got a problem. As a fan, I don't want you to be worried about a work stoppage. I want you to focus on the entertainment of baseball and the hot stove. In Chicago, I want you to be excited that you got Grandal. I want you to read every rumor that's always wrong. I want you to read every tweet of speculation, which is always ridiculous. I want you to get excited to think that your team can actually win the World Series, which it unlikely it can. I want you to believe that I'm being subliminal, man, by the way, from Saturday Night Live. I'm saying something, but I'm also quietly telling you what I really think in case you're missing that while you're listening. I want everyone to have the hope that they can think about just baseball and that business will never creep into any discussion. There's no chance that'll happen. So here's my goal and my thought and my advice to you as a fan. Anytime you see that Tony Clark or Rob Manford are saying anything relating to collective bargaining, Anytime you see an agent tweeting something about something that's not fair when it comes to the amount of money the players make, and anytime you see an owner complain that there aren't enough fans or they're not getting enough money in TV revenue, I want you to turn it off like a light switch. Ignore it. Don't give it a thought. I want you to make us talk to you about on-field issues. I want you to make us talk to you about what we would do to run a team differently that would add to performance. Don't let those people complain to you about all that ails them. Make them come to you and entertain you. So don't worry about a work stoppage because if there is one, I'll be here to entertain you and sing to you every single day on Nothing Personal. I got a tweet yesterday from uh, someone called uh, NBA Retweet. It's I, I don't know I don't know their handle, but it, it fascinated me, and I'm going to show it on screen. And here's what I'm showing: I'm showing a cartoon picture of 32 men, and these are the men who are the franchise players for the NBA. Now, what I'm trying to figure out is who came up with this list, and I'm going to give you a few that I take umbrage against. Number one. Can you explain to me how for the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo is the number... Did I get that right, Copacabana? Is it Giannis Antetokounmpo? I'm calling him Giannis. They have Giannis as the franchise player for the Milwaukee Bucks. It's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. No matter what standards we're going to have, and right now I'm going to make the standards, and I want you to get to me at... Did P. Sampson with who your franchise players are for each NBA team. But here's my standards. It's got to be someone on the team 
who was the best player for that team while on that team. And the best that player was in his career playing on that team. So here's my example. Could Michael Jordan be the franchise best player for the Washington Wizards? Of course not. He wasn't Mike that Michael Jordan. He was that Michael Jordan for the Bulls. What about LeBron James for the Lakers? LeBron James is maybe the greatest player of all time behind Michael Jordan. We could debate it. If my friend Ruben were here, he'd be storming the set right now, telling me that LeBron James is the greatest player in the history of the National Basketball Association. But even if he were, is he that guy now with the Los Angeles Lakers? Are you telling me that Magic Johnson is not the greatest Laker of all time? What about the Miami Heat? Who is the best player in the history of the franchise? They say Dwayne Wade. I say LeBron James. LeBron James was at his best as a member of the Miami Heat, and he brought the Heat rings. When you do that, you're a champion. Now, what about the Toronto Raptors? They've got Kawhi Leonard as the greatest player, all-time franchise best. Can you play one season, win one ring, and then leave and be the greatest player in the entire history of a franchise? I think not. My vote would have been Vince Carter. And you tell me, but wait a minute, there's no ring there. That's why the game is played. So when you look at my Twitter, if you go now, you'll get this picture. Hakeem Olajuwon, the greatest rocket of all time. How can James Harden not be the greatest rocket of all time? I think James Harden is going to go down in history. Ah, but Hakeem Olajuwon won two rings. And he was a true number five, which is a center for those new NBA fans. So this list goes on and on, and it fascinates me. My own team, New York Knicks, thank God they chose Patrick Ewing. Except I wouldn't have chosen Patrick Ewing. He's my all-time favorite athlete, but he's not the best New York Nick of all time. The best New York Nick of all time is a fight between Willis Reed, Clyde Frazier, you think, Earl Monroe, <clears throat> Dave DeBusher. It's not Patrick Ewing. I'm ringless with Patrick Ewing, but not with Willis Reed. So please go through this list and get back to me with what you are, because it's something that when you own a team and run a team, you actually have to deal with, because you talk to your fans all the time about who the best players are for a particular team. Major League Baseball did something called the Mount Rushmore of every single Major League team. And so there was a vote taken. Anytime you do an internet vote, just know that we can actually control what the results are. And that if we don't like what the results are, we're going to change what the final tally is and do whatever we want. Because we're not doing a U.S. census. This is not a legal obligation for you to tell me who the top four Marlins were of all time. I want your input. But at the end of the day, we're going to put on the poster on the Mount Rushmore of the Marlins who we want to put on. Just like the Yankees will and just like all other 30 teams. We ended up putting Mike Lowell, Jeff Conine, Gary Sheffield, and Giancarlo Stanton. Are those really the top four Marlins of all time? Well, they were my Mount Rushmore, and you could argue that Sheffield didn't play there long enough, but he was there for the 97 championship. You could ar argue that Stanton never won anything, never finished above 500, but he's still, to me, one of the four greatest Marlins who ever played. But why not Mike Piazza, who's a Hall of Famer? How could he not be on there, you're asking? He's actually in the Hall of Fame. Well, it goes back to my criteria. Mike Piazza was a Marlin for about a minute and a half. Doesn't count. You have to have substantial at-bats 
and be at your best when you were on that team. And those four players were, in my opinion. I think the NBA retweet did not do the best job of franchise players, but I'd like you to do better, and I know you can. Well, today's November 22nd, and we've got a a movie coming out that we're going to talk about, but we're not going to review the movie because obviously I haven't seen the movie. The movie's called Frozen 2, and Frozen 2 stars as Olaf, someone named Josh Gad. Josh Gad is a local South Floridian who actually went to the high school where my kids went. And he is a great, great guy and one of the funniest actors out there. So Josh, in honor of you and in honor of Frozen 2 and hoping for that $100 million debut this weekend, I would like to review and rank your top three performances of all time. Now, notice how I didn't say film performances. It's all performances. Number three, Josh, a movie that I've watched over and over again. If you haven't seen The Wedding Ringer with Kevin Hart and Josh Cadd, then you're not paying attention to laughing and laughter. Kevin Hart, who's now recovering from his accident, why don't you throw him a bone and go watch the movie? It did well, made some money, but it is one of the funniest movies that I've seen. And Josh Gad's performance is spectacular. Now, does he play sort of the lovable loser? Yes, he does. But at the end, as Josh very well knows, lovable losers, not that you ever were one, not that you are one, but lovable losers always win at the end. No one wants to peak in high school. We know those who do. That's not you, Josh. Wedding ringers, number two. Number three. My second ranked Josh Gad performance is something that uh, you got to do a sequel for and something you're becoming famous for is Frozen. The minute Frozen came out with Idina and with you and with Kristen Bell, we knew there would be a sequel, and you knew that you'd have to do the amount of promoting that you've done, which is traveling around the world. How is it that you found a way to make Olaf, the character in Frozen, one of the most famous animated characters of all time? It's because we see you in Olaf. We see your humor. You take the words and the music, and you brought them to life. You are the reason, Josh. This is sort of my love story to you. But you're the reason why Frozen is so successful, and you're the reason why Frozen 2 is going to be so successful. But the number one Josh Gad performance of all time is not a movie. It's a play called The Book of Mormon. You, as you remember, Josh, you were the first guy on Broadway to play Alder Cunningham. Remember? Turn it off like a light switch from earlier in the show. Well, if you've never seen Book of Mormon, then try to go when it travels to your town because there's a traveling company for it. This is a play about Mormons in Utah, and it is beyond humorous, and it's beyond rated R. If this were a movie, it would not have a PG-13 rating. It's funny, it's dirty, it's raunchy, and the most of all, it's true. And Josh Gad plays a Mormon who is assigned to be a Mormon and to raise the Mormonship in the great country he wanted Orlando. He ended up being assigned Uganda. Yes, Josh Gad and his character had to go to Uganda and try to make everybody a Mormon. Great music, great performance, Josh. I wish you nothing but luck. Boy, Nike's into it, aren't they? God, I love Nike. So here's the story, and it's a quick one, but a good one, and and it's happening right now. You know we've got something in in football, and it's been pretty good. It's called the... uh, Uh, Excuse me one second. It's called the Salute to Service. 
what the salute to services is, we all do it around Veterans Day, and it's where the teams are wearing sort of camouflage, and it's where Nike gives out new uniforms and new sideline attire to each team. Now, this is very common because you know they wear pink sometimes, they wear blue sometimes for breast cancer, for prostate cancer, Mother's Day, Father's Day, baseball does it, football does it. We do it around Memorial Day and Labor Day. Well, the NFL this this year really stepped in it. And here's who's to blame, and here's what actually happened. Nike made hoodies. You know all these coaches who wear hoodies on the sideline? Well, Nike made hoodies for salute to service for all 32 teams. And on the cover of each hoodie was the name of every football team. Miami Dolphins, New York Jets, Los Angeles Chargers, Washington football. What? Washington football? That's not the name of their team. The name of the team is the Washington Redskins. Why does it say Washington football? Well, there must be a reason. So let's ask the spokesperson for the Washington Redskins. And here's what he said. This would be a question for Nike, said team spokesperson Sean DeBarbery. They issue all of the NFL team gear. You're going to let him get away with that? Here's how it really works, Sean. And you know this even if you're just a spokesperson in PR. Nike doesn't issue team gear without the team approving it first. We spent hours during the offseason looking at every single hat that was going to be produced by New Era, every single uniform by Nike or Majestic, everything that had our logo on it, we had approval on as a team. You're telling me that your team, the Redskins, and the owner, Daniel Snyder, had no idea that their hoodies for service day would say Washington football? That's a lie. Nike doesn't have the final say. You do. And you're trying to pass the buck. All you had to do was stand up and tell your fans the following. We are right now taking a look at our nickname, the Washington Redskins, because we believe that and understand that people are sensitive to being offended by that nickname. And we did not want to rub it in anyone's face, including Native Americans who actually served in our military after we took all their land by force and killed them. We didn't want to further offend them. So we're just going to put Washington football and pretend that no one will notice. Really? That's your story? You're going to think that no one would have noticed that you put Washington football on? And when we do, you're going to say it was Nike who did it? Redskins, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, but who's surprised by that? So every day we do a pick of the day, and uh, I keep winning picks of the day, but yesterday something happened, and here's what I didn't think would actually happen. It didn't occur to me that the Pelicans would open the third quarter and hit 10 out of 10 shots. Who does that? Who does that? We had the win with the Suns. We had it. We're up at 1030 watching the game. It's a national game. We're excited. We're willing to stay up till one in the morning. We believe that we're going to keep up and win and we lose. Well, I'm going to stay awake again today and I'm going to definitely win. We've got a game with the Chicago Bulls and the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat are on the road. I'm trying to figure out exactly why the Heat on the road are favored I'm going to stay in the NBA, and I'm going to tell you to take the points with the Bulls. I'm getting four points by taking the Bulls. I think that's too many. The Heat are a better home team than road team, and I think that they've completely outperformed. We named them our surprise team of the first 15% of the NBA, but there's simply no reason why that line will be so large.
So I love value, and this to me had tremendous value. So we're going to get back on the horse, and we're going to take four points and the Bulls. The Heat are vulnerable. Stay with me. We're going to watch the game and win. Another thing we love to do every day is the wait and see segment. And wait to see is when we tell you something that's going to happen, and we absolutely are accountable for everything we say. Believe it or not, Coca, the producer, has an entire spreadsheet of every wait to see we've done, and this will be our 28th today. And we've gotten some wrong and some right, and when one of them is solved or happens, we come and tell you. Well, this wait to see will be over on Monday. I can't wait for Sunday. I wish we had a show. I miss you guys when I'm not here during the weekend. But we've got three games that I need to watch every play of every game. You've got the Cowboys playing the Patriots. You've got the Seahawks playing the Eagles. And then you've got the Packers playing the Niners. These are three must-see games. My wait to see is not that you're going to watch them, which you are. It's not that you're going to watch the end to see who wins, which you are. It's that you're going to bet them. And you're going to win if you take all three favorites. These are three games of the slate where I promise you all three favorites will cover. We've got New England only giving six and a half to Dallas. Philadelphia a point over the Seahawks. And San Francisco is only a field goal over the Packers. That's a straight bet because people bet the Packers way more than any other team because they love the Packers and they bet with their heart and they so badly want the Packers to win. So every time I see a line with the Packers like this when they're playing a good team, it makes me happy when it's this low. I can't believe the Niners at home are only giving three. I have not been wholly impressed with the Packers or with Aaron Rodgers, while their record would say that I should be. To me, that's the give me of these three games. The one I'm a little concerned about is Philadelphia-Seattle, because every time I put my heart with the Eagles, I get my heart broken. And it's hard to ever bet against Pete Carroll, and it's hard to ever bet against Russell Wilson. But that said, the wait to see is the three favorites of the three big games. Those will be the ones to win. Wait to see. So when we go through all of our our issues, I want you to think back to one thing we talked about today. I want you to think back to what happens when billionaires fight. Because billionaires will tell you from start to finish, it's always just business. It's never personal. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.